All right, welcome back to Radio Wasteland and our guest, William Ramsey. We're going to be talking about uh, a, a favorite sort of loose topic of mine. I don't know if it's a favorite topic because I don't know very much about it, but I'm kind of a sucker for the occult. So anything with Aleister Crowley on it, I'm interested in. And, of course, a connection to 9-11 and the New World Order draws me in all the further. Uh, William, do we have you there with us? I'm here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you yeah. very much. Um, okay, so, you know, this is uh, this is a... If nothing else, this is a big sentence to unpack. You know, uh, Alistair Crowley, nine eleven, New World Order, and and how they're all connected. Let's uh, let's start off with um, with talking about Alistair Crowley. Let's let's let us all know who Alistair Crowley was. Well, that's uh, hard to put encapsulate in a very short amount of time. But did, Crowley was born in eighteen seventy five. He died in nineteen forty nine. He was born into a wealthy brewing and uh, basically a food services family. They provided food to the pubs of England. He grew up or in Leamington Spa and was the priv- privileged only son. He had a daughter who died in infancy, uh, bro- a sister, excuse me, who died in infancy. But he was uh, privy to a lot of wealth, but also the best public schools. Um, his father died when he was 12, and... He basically changed from his parents' version of Christianity, which was uh, the exclusive brethren. They were a subset of what was known as the Plymouth Brethren, founded by John Nelson Darby, uh, famous, who is famous for dispensationalism, the dispensationalism view of the Bible, and broke from that and pretty much rebelled when he went off to Cambridge to study after going to the best private, what they call public schools, we would call private schools of England. And it was there that he claimed, or he said he was white hot on three subjects. It was mountaineering, poetry, and the occult. So he spent his time reading. He, he, was not, uh, he, never really gra- he never graduated from Cambridge. He thought it was beneath him. But he spent his time studying and writing poetry and began publishing books at a very, you know, right around that time while he was in Cambridge. Then he looked and found this, this magical group, group called the Golden Dawn. They were they had very famous uh, members: uh, William Butler Yeats, Bram Stoker of Dracula fame, and it was a post-Masonic group. So it was people who had gone through all of the grades of Masonry, and they were a group that practiced ceremonial magic. So he began practicing the magic that they had, and he he eventually left that group and set out on his own with the intent to, uh, his self-professed intent was to be one of the greats of the future. He had been at Cambridge and been amongst all these very famous uh, intellectuals, so he intended to be one of these of the future, and in many ways he, he might be one of the most famous occultists of all time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, anytime I think of sort of occultists, uh, you know, borderline you know, Satanist, what one would call Satanism. Uh, I think of him and Anton LaVey, and really I can't think of any other uh, big names uh, in it. And I've always been interested in Aleister Crowley. I understand that they're very different. I'm just saying that they're the names that they come up. Because occultism, you know, it's like it seems like it was in a time that occultism was sort of taken seriously. No doubt. I mean, I think he was influenced by Blavatsky, the many people were. She had... uh written these books, and there was also this influx of ideas from the East. So 
concepts from India, China, occult concepts, and they were being integrated into the West, and, and Crowley was one of the people who did do that. He traveled in an early time before plane flight. He circumnavigated the globe twice and was spending a lot of time in India to do his two most famous climbs, which were Kanchenjunga. He had to go to India, and the other one I think is K2. He had to go to India and travel through India, and there he would always be absorbing ideas from Buddhism and yoga. So all of these ideas were really uh, coming back to the, the West and, and then being kind of put into the melange of uh, these new kind of religious movements of whom Crowley was definitely, I think, one of the more influential ones. So I think a lot of people would say that he was one of three things. Either he was crazy, a charlatan, or he was um, genuine. Magic. Genuine, yeah. or he was genuine. Okay. You know, uh, okay. be that magic or his own belief system. Um, you know, which do you think he really falls into? Or is I think he was all three. I yeah. think he was, part <laughs> was, and he was also part serious. And uh, I think that if you look at some of his relationships with other people, he was clearly a charlatan, but he took himself very seriously. People said he had a puritanical, or one biographer said he had a puritanical attitude towards his, his work in occultism, which is why his corpus was so remarkable, or remarkably huge. I mean, just in occultism, he had an immense amount of material, and that's, that's not even including all his journalistic works, which have never been properly compiled by any of his biographers or researchers. So... He was always writing. He never really worked a, a steady, what would be known as a steady job. He relied upon his family income until he depleted that and then grifted or sponged off his followers looking for checks uh, monthly, even all the way till his death. So uh, that afforded him so much time to partake and, and be involved in his interests. But, yeah, he was, he was part chosen, but I think he was very serious. I mean, he called himself a prophet of the new aeon. He believed he was the prophet of this being who dictated to him the Book of the Law in 1904, and he was the only proper interpreter of that book, this received book, that is in three parts that happened to him while he was in uh, Egypt. So um, he de definitely had a serious part of him, but also you could tell that he was very manipulative, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he was partially crazy. I mean, there's, there's decent amounts of information that he was in a mental institution to people who were pretty well-known, Arthur Miller and uh, a diarist by the name of Anais Nin both said he was in a mental institution later on in life in Switzerland. And he clearly uh, had very strange behaviors. I mean, he would brand his women, the Scarlet Women, this magical partners, with a literal brand representing the mark of the beast on their chest. Uh, so there was a significant amount of women who had that. He punched one woman in the eyeball, broke her eye socket. He told one of his followers to take out an insurance policy with him as a beneficiary, and then killed himself so that he could be he could have money to pursue the great work. Man, so you could see all of these. One and, you know, he was follower. involved in eating human bodily emissions, all kinds of strange stuff. Yeah, man, that is one committed follower. That's very committed. And he guy actually did. His name was Mud. He actually did end up committing suicide, but not giving Crowley. Uh, and then Crowley left in his wake madness, suicide, and death. Most of his followers either ended up one of those uh, unfortunate uh, types. So surely in his writings he went on to, uh, and we only got a couple minutes up until the break here, so we'll just get started here, but surely in his writings he went on to um, 
say some things that have people take him seriously enough now to connect him to events of today. Well, oh, no question. I think that that's one of the interesting aspects, not just about Curley, but any religious leader, is that they're, they have this corpus of work that people reference. They never see through to other people's shortcomings, personality shortcomings or deceptions. And I think that that's why Curley kind of maintains his impact and import. As many people don't know what type of person, how heavily drug addled he was, his manipulations of other people. Um, so, yeah, so I think that people look to Curley, and Curley promised people ideals that are very, uh, what I would say, modern. You know, the do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law, which involved things that some people are attracted to, free sex, drugs, uh, the involvement of whatever culture you want to be involved in. So in that right. promise, people do take that aspect of Curly seriously, and they they get an expurgated, you know, spoonerized version of Curly. They don't see him for, you know, some of the uh, more vile practices. Right, and that net, that sort of nihilism, um, anarchism side is where I see the, the direct parallel to Anton LaVey, even though he called himself a Satanist. He really, he was really much more of a nihilist or a hedonist, or a... Or a well, according to, I think, LaVey said that he didn't believe that Satan was an external entity, it was an idea. Right, so I think right. Crowley was different than LaVey in that regard, because Crowley spent most of his time, well, not most of his time, but over time contacting and praying and worshipping this entity he called Avos. So he was worshipping the, the dark side, even though he was raised Christian, and following that stuff, he eventually was was worshiping the dark side? Well, I think that, I think from a Christian perspective, no doubt. I think from his aspect, he believed that Christianity was something to uh, fight against. He believed, you know, any type, any means necessary to overthrow. He actually wanted to replace Christendom with Curlianity. So he would call, he would use terms that takes a while to understand, but the Black Brotherhood was Christendom. That's what he would refer to them. So, oh, and in time, you know, he, he definitely exposed who this A was being, he said it was Lucifer, the Satan of this part of the starry galaxy. So he, he was just a Satanist with a lot of blinds. He was very intelligent, so he was able to conceal the real foundations of his work. But he, one of his things was to overthrow Christianity. So I would say his all of his ideas are dark-sided. Right. Uh, numerology, concepts, and do with that world overall things. You know, it, it was very selfish and self-centered. He's kind of has very consonant or, or similar to the principles of magician where you're at the center of the universe all right well uh we are coming up on break here we're listening to william ramsey we're talking about prophet of evil alistair crowley uh 9-11 in the new world order when we come back uh, i'm going to uh find out from you william uh, really where that connection is with 9-11 in the new world order you're listening to william ramsey here on radio wasteland come on back Follow Radio Wasteland on Facebook at facebook.com slash radiowasteland.us. All right, welcome back to Radio Wasteland. And we are talking about Alistair Crowley with our guest, William Ramsey. Uh, so 
let's let's hop right into it. How is he connected with nine eleven and the New World Order? What is the connection here? How how could this be bridged? Well, that's a good question. So if you read through Crowley's stuff, he believed in numerology. Eleven was really his primary number, but it wasn't just the number of magic, it was the number of the New World Order and uh, so 11 was very important, but he also used to do all these scribblings through Dramatria, which is a, uh, a means of uh, attributing numerical values to letters. And the prime numbers of his religion, or the prime, excuse me, the prime words, were Agape and Thelema. Both uh, added up to 93 in the English Dramatria. So 93 became an important kind of code or <clears throat> number for Aleister Crowley. And people often in, that are higher up in the Krulian teachings just sign their uh, signatures. After signing their signatures, they say 93, 93, 93, which is short for uh, love under law, love under will. So will being Palima, love being Agape. So 93 is an important number. 77 seven references Crowley uh, in his Libra Oz also. 77 is kind of like the Lady Babylon and all adds up, so he had this kind of a symbolism of Lady Babylon. So these numbers and the ideas of Crowley really was to uh, transform the world. His idea was to illuminate the world, so to speak, with his religion. So he died in 1947, uh, but the events of 9-11 have not only his numerology infused through him, but also, I believe, the underlying uh, gist or intent of the event was occult in nature. So the date of the event is the 9-11. The buildings are 2-11, right, broken into three separate buildings of 33. So there's all kinds of numerology in the event, but the main planes were 11, 93, 77, and 175. And Crowley's ritual magical system was to worship the god you adore. Um, so I do believe that that was a kind of adoration number that was added to it. Uh, and the first plane to hit the World Trade Center was building 11, 93 supposedly dropped in Shanksville. 77 uh, was the one that I believe hit the Pentagon. And 175 was the second plane that hit the towers. All right, you're losing me with all these numbers, though. I'm not really understanding the correlation of these numbers. I understand that they were important to him, but but I'm I'm not making right. the leap, uh, understanding the okay. leap. Okay, well, okay, so then, I mean, we can talk about that, but so then you have this event, this kind of... Uh, you know, potent of the 9-11 event, which I think functioned as a kind of magical working, mm-hmm. something like Crowley would do. And I believe that Crowley's ideas of uh, the New World Order and the, are a kind of occultish ideas. So 11 years before the events of 9-11, George Bush Sr. gave a very important speech where he referenced the New World Order. So I believe that that was made with the intent and knowledge of the foregoing of future events. Uh, September 11th, 2001. I see. So, so, so basically I, I, one I, thing we're saying here is that uh, Crowley's motivation was to sort of recreate the world in his own plan correct. for I the mean, future. I, I think that he was going to create his own religion. Right. And I believe that his his religion is consistent with satanic ideals uh, and that somebody else picked up on that, either through the Secret Society Network, the OTO, or whatever happened after Crowley died, and carried that forward, carried out this objective, and at a very important time meridian, 
So, so we're basically saying here this is like like they picked up the torch and they're carrying it. Well, that happens right. So that happens all the way through Christendom or any really religious group is after the leader dies. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So if you read my book, Children of the Beast, you'll be, might be surprised at how many people picked up Crowley's torch, so to speak. Timothy Leary thought he was carrying on the work of Alistair Crowley, mm. and this was a huge kind of change agent influencer of the '60s who actually found that there were amazing synchronicities between his life and it. So there's a lot of people who were influenced by Crowley who thereby influenced common culture. Then if you want to go through the Bush family and talk about Barbara Bush, her mom, uh, who was in France at the time, that Crowley was in the time, then you could actually have a kind of familial bond between Crowley and the events of 9-11. So we're thinking, you know, with, with this line of thought, is thinking that that nine eleven was um, not orchestrated by the terrorists that they would have you. Believe. No, of course not. Yeah, no, it was a structured event planned ahead. I think the terrorists were window dressing for the real perpetrators. I mean, you have to if you look through the ideas of like David Rockefeller, who built both the Twin Towers, they used to be called David and Nelson after the two brothers when Nelson died. Um, they, they were the founding real force behind the building of the Twin Towers and also the U.N. building. So they were involved in very, and the U.N. is the real idea to create this kind of new world order. So I do believe that both of those buildings and both of those things were created with the intent of hastening the breaking down of old national boundaries and creating a new world. Absolutely. Now, what would the motivation behind that be, you know, uh, to to basically fear people into following? Um, you yeah, know? I think that the, the real motivation, is, I think that's a multi-tiered motivation, but I do believe it's to put the secret society elite system into power, which I do believe happened. I believe it was a wealth transfer. I believe that uh, the insiders knew what was going to happen in advance. It made changes based on their financial changes in life. And uh, the slave shall serve. Everybody else didn't know what was going to happen. So I do believe the intent was solidify power, which I do believe happened. And solidify really a much more fascist, uh, draconian state, which you can see with the so-called Patriot, which isn't patriotic, uh, and all these other changes that happened after that under the Bush-Cheney administration. Right, but, um, you know, a lot of people are going to view this as being uh, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal. Um, well, they're, you know, they're, they're not picking up the real deeper thing behind the Democratic or Republican because there's a hand behind both parties. It's no, it's no, uh, it's not some kind of coincidence or some kind of random thing that both the Democratic and Republican parties basically have been run by people out of Yale affiliated with the the Skull and Bones Society for at least since what Reagan, you know, and so and, and even Nelson Rockefeller was the vice president, right? So that was under Ford. So the long-term impact of these families is uh, goes back decades, really. So uh, you know, how much? If you really want to get into Democrats, they're really elite Democrats. They don't. They're neo. They're neo. Liberals, they're not. Uh, they don't care about the working class. They ostensibly prattle to. They sold everybody's uh, manufacturing out to China. 
undercut them with foreign labor, so they don't care. Well, that's completely true. I think they're insane. Can't Uh, argue with that part. (laughs) Right, yeah, that's true. Well, I agree with that or you don't agree? No, I I do agree with that. I think that's completely correct. (laughs) Because, I mean, that's the elite grip, right? So if you can fix the elections, if you can get your own people into power, I think that that's, that's really what's been happening even not just in this country, but I believe that there's an elite selection process that he's been around the country, and it's always been that way. Yeah, so yeah, no, I'm definitely not disagreeing with you. I'm just trying to formulate my question in my head, which is good timing here. We're coming up on break. We're talking to William Ramsey. We're talking about Alistair Crowley, 9-11, and the New World Order. And uh, come on back. You're listening to Radio Wasteland. shows and archives by visiting Radio Wasteland at RadioWasteland.us. All right, welcome back to Radio Wasteland and our guest, William Ramsey. We're talking about Aleister Crowley, 9-11, and the New World Order, and I'm finally able to to, to put my, my brain around what I was trying to figure out from before. So, so we're talking about how um, they're carrying the torch from Aleister Crowley, they're um, and we're talking about the Bushes, and I can see a Bush-Clinton comparison there. And But by the time we get to Trump, it feels like we're very anti-that. And so right. I was trying to figure out if, if Trump was like a new hidden spearhead behind this, or if Trump means that they failed. And really, where do Obama and Trump fall into this game plan? That's a great question. I do think that Obama was had CIA connections, so I think that he was the appropriate handoff after the eight years of Bush's assaults on the Constitution and really the financial undermining of the American people, intentional design undermining of the American people. And a lot of people seem to have made that connection between Bush, Obama, the Clintons. They seem to have piled them together. 
Well, yeah, but I mean, I think that Trump is kind of an anomaly. I don't think he was expected to win, to be honest with you. I think they were trying to hand it back to Hillary Clinton to uh, keep this whole lineage going. So I expected Hillary Clinton to win. And I think Trump is very... You and everybody else. (laughs) Pardon me? You and everybody else. Yeah, so uh, I think that Trump is uh, kind of a breath of fresh air in the sense that he isn't part of this cabal. I think that... Trump's real personality really is kind of an outsider. He's not a part of the Ivy League system or this uh, Yaley system, really. And so he doesn't seem to he doesn't seem to have a problem bristling or being in conflict with them. And the entirety, if you look at his staff, they're in the Republican Party, but there's nobody from the Bush Clinton machine. You know, mainly the Bush Clinton people who should have stayed over. Uh, to a new Republican administration. So I do think something unique is happening in the American uh, experience, and I do think it was a revolutionary change that was from a groundswell of people who were keying into the fixing and gaming of the system. And I do think that the whole Russia myth and all this is evidence or, or clear, clear and obvious evidence of the capacity to game the system and to get people's own... Uh, you know, elite minions into certain positions of power. So Trump, to me, is much different than Obama. It's pretty clear Obama did not like Trump. And actually, you can almost place the... uh, I think Trump always had ambitions to become president. Uh, I think he had the capacity and charisma to do it. I think that when... I forgot which... uh, It was one of the uh, dinners where Obama was insulting Trump and said, you'll never be president. That could have been a turning point in American history right there, because Trump was pissed. I think and I so saw that. Made, I think I knew what you're talking about. It was yeah. correspondence. So I do okay. think that there's there's a clean break between Obama and Trump, but there's not a clean big break between Obama and the Bush family. So Yeah, there's um, definitely something to be said there for um, institutionalized politicians, you know. Uh, yeah, and I mean, look at, look at them uh, Obama, not, look at how much of a golden boy he was. He really wasn't from some kind of thing. Where did he come from? How did he get ahead? How did he beat out Hillary Clinton? There's a lot of questions there, but uh, I think that his mom or somebody like that worked for the CIA or was a CIA asset. They had an interesting growing up uh, phase, too. So I do think that these guys are all, if you look at, he gave an initial speech, Obama did, I think it was in Berlin, with all kinds of occult references. So the occultism of uh, the Bush family and, and uh, Obama's. I think that Trump knows of some of the stuff, but he doesn't seem to be really acting upon these occult principles of the slave shall serve. If you look at my book, Children, uh, Prophet of Evil, you'll see that Bush himself, like his aircraft carriers, a 77. So he's got all this numerology that the insiders know, uh, and he wears hats with 77s on him. So Bush Sr., before he died, was heavily involved in all that stuff. And the same with the Rockefeller family. He's got a breakdown. 30 rocks or anything like that. So Trump is an anomaly. So something refreshing is happening with him that I think is really a boon to Americans in a lot of ways. Well, we're coming up on another election here. Where, How do you think this is going to go down? I mean, it seems like with powers and stuff like this, you think they would just, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say anything that will get people all upset, but they'd, they'd JFK him. You know, um, right. with, I think with that's these levels the of I mean, one of the first things, right, that's a great question. I just did a great show on my podcast 
interviewing Jefferson Morley about James Jesus Angleton is neck deep in the JFK assassination. What Trump did when he first came into office is he basically uh, he gilded, he gilded I would, he basically put women in positions of power at the CIA. It's something for a first. They're all women, so he's clearly thinking he could have get JFK'd. And I think that the um, the whole Russia you know attack, which is really a vicious, deceptive attack is an attempt to try to get him out of office. So uh, I think he's up against very powerful institutional forces, and I think that he would be happy if Biden actually ran against him because he's about as corrupt as they come. It's a long-term, multi-decade uh, uh, swamp dweller who looks like he has his son taking bribes for him from China and Ukraine. It's crazy. Yeah, I do think that he hopes to uh, be up against uh, Biden. I don't... I don't see that working out. I don't think I don't think Biden can win. I think it's really uh, Buttigieg or somebody who's an outsider is really the people who have the best chance. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, all right. So, uh, what's coming up next for you? What uh, what's uh, you know well, we're coming up on the end of the show here? Sorry, can you repeat that? Oh, I was just saying we're coming up on the end of the show here. I want to you know be able to get the word out about where people can find out more about you and uh, what's coming up next for you. Well, this was my first book, so I've written Children of the Beast about Crowley's influence upon the 20th century. I also wrote about a criminal case, the West Memphis Three, the deceptions involved in that. I recently put out in 2017 a book about the Smiley Face Killers, this rash of murders of about two to 300 men in the U.S. alone that uh, I've ended up thrown in dead and thrown in water. You can see that on Vimeo, and also my occult Hollywood volume two is on Vimeo, so my more recent documentaries are on Vimeo, and all my books are available on Amazon. And I do post a lot on Twitter and Facebook. All right. Well, we will definitely make it a point to get some uh, links up to these things. Uh, you know, this is our, our first time really dealing with the occult on the show, so uh, we really enjoyed that. And uh, 9-11, I, I think maybe we've touched on the topic once before. You see, uh, it seems Yeah, to... not not really, actually. Yeah, so so we've really enjoyed having it's you on, stuff. William. Yeah, uh, you know, it's Thank always... You, you know, there's only so much UFOs and Bigfoot people can with, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, true. <laughs> if you have me back on, we can talk about Children of the Beast. Or if you want to do a creepy uh, show about a serial killing, look into the Smiley Face Killers. Or look into the information because I do believe that there is an underground group of people who are loosely connected committing the same crime in the United States. That, that sounds, sounds amazing. Work. That sounds like the winner for <laughs> us. All right, we'll we'll be back in touch. And uh, you've been listening to William Ramsey here on Radio Wasteland. It's been a really good time. Check us out. All right, welcome back to Radio Wasteland. We have been listening to our guest, William Ramsey, talking about Alistair Crowley. I've been saying Crowley, but Crowley, apparently, which is also his name in that show that uh, Jared and I like. Uh, Alistair Crowley, 9-11, and the New World Order. Yes. That was a lot to unpack. You know, I had said that at <laughs> yeah, the beginning, okay. <laughs> and then he unpacked it, and I'm all, you know, that's some serious spatial economics, getting all of that in there. Um, oh, so, uh, you know, I mean... I know you don't think Trump is a breath of fresh air, so let's remove that from the end. Yeah, okay, let's just let's skip right by that. Um, well, we'll come to it, but but as far as the everything shy of the Trump, the possibility of the using nine eleven to control people in a new world order fashion, stemming from occultism, 
Where, how do you, how do you take this? I think I believe some of it. Do you? I don't believe 9-11 was an inside job, because, you know, I'm familiar with the evidence and that situation, and I just don't think it makes that much sense. I do think 9-11 was absolutely leveraged by politicians to, you know, get what they wanted and strip people of civil liberties. Like, I, I don't know how you oh, could even argue yeah, that. Yeah, like, And also, when he's talking about, you know, presidents being part of the same tradition, sure, I mean... Every president from the 80s to now has basically been neoliberal in terms of economic policy. You know, they've differed on abortions, guns, whatever, but in terms of how they want the economy to function, you know, deregulation good, uh, you know, entitlements bad, that's, that's kind of been the governing philosophy. Even on the Democrat side. Even on the Democrat side. They're just a little slower about it. The Democrats used to be much more progressive than they are. Mm. You know, when you, when you look at Roosevelt or... Okay, in economic ways, I should say. I'm not right. talking socially progressive. But if you look at, you know, Roosevelt, if you look at um, Johnson, they, they were pretty upfront about, you know, the fact that they wanted the government to take care of the poor. Right, and yeah. you compare that to Clinton... Um, he he cut welfare by a lot. He yeah, entirely he was, reformed the way it worked. Yeah, you know? he was he, the uh, five year guy, wasn't he? Yeah, basically, you get five years of welfare and then you're you're on your own. Precisely. So, and he was kind of the first Democrat who basically saw the success of Reagan, and the Democrats hadn't won in a while. So, you know, he was like, "I'll just be Reagan, but I'll run as a Democrat." That peanut farmer. They had that peanut farmer in there. Uh, that was before Reagan. Jimmy yeah. Carter? Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. So, <laughs> any, anyway, I'm I'm kind of getting off track here. So, I, I think that bit makes sense. Um, I think the occult connection is very complicated, and I don't think it's... I just didn't find that particularly convincing, especially when he's talking about numerology. It's like... There are so many significant events happening every single day, and every one of them has, you know, who many, who knows how many different numbers associated with them. We live in a complicated right. world, and it's run by numbers. You can find, you so can find it, it's like in, the argument of reading statistics, and you can yeah. bend those statistics to your arguments. Will yeah, I, I think you you could probably find occult numbers in any significant historical event. Well, let me ask you this: Do you believe in the occult at all? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's very significant. I th We've actually talked to a lot of, you know, witches and psychics and whatever on the show. I think it's, you know, possible that they have some form of power. Mm -hmm. I don't think, <laughs> you know, I don't think that power is very effective. Or useful. I think it's more of a curiosity. Than it's more of a nudge than a push. Yeah, exactly. So, but that's not really what we're talking about with Crowley. We're not talking about power. We're talking about, well, kind of real power, which is that he was a cult leader. Right. And, yeah, yeah. and his ideas had power. A lot more power than you would get from, you know, magic. Um, but I, like, these guys were not occultists. And right. you could argue, okay, they were hiding it from everyone. But at the end of the day, there was no evidence that Reagan, the Bushes, Clintons, etc., 
were occultists. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't, I don't know. Maybe he'd argue that, that there is. I'm not familiar with it. I think, you know, he's probably gone a lot deeper into the evidence than I have. Right. But, you know, you know as, <laughs> as with most things, I'm not a firm believer in much of anything. Um, but I want to believe. Sure. I really want to believe that we've been controlled by a, a cult uh, sub-organization and stuff like that. But I, I personally, for me, if I'm going to make that leap to say that, that we believe in a, an occult um, controlling faction of our entire society, right? I'm going to make the leap and say that that people were catching on and so they put a new face on it. Right. Uh, I'm not going to say that that Trump is not part of it, because... Well, if you look at his policies, who, they're the same as everyone before him. Yeah, you know? and, I, and I mean, how many controlled different. societies and empires and all this stuff were lost due to an election? Right. Yeah. A lot of them were lost due to war and bloodshed and coups and all sorts of stuff, yeah, that, but in an election, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, the Illuminati is just sitting in their, you know, triangle-shaped boardroom, and there's like... Oh, I guess I guess we'd better pack it in, boys. You're right, you know, totally. I think it's over. <laughs> it was a close call. It was a close call. Yeah, totally. It looks like Stevenson got it on the draft. There, Stevenson gets the whole pile. You know, like they were betting on it or something. And, you know, if this organization can manufacture this whole Trump Russia thing, they can absolutely win an election. Like, yeah, I think. <laughs> what? So. Yeah, I, I I do believe that there are factions that. Uh, I do believe that corporations are more powerful than our government at yeah. this point. Or I do believe that corporations, what corporations have is, they're not more powerful, but what they are is... Not accountable. Not glacially slow. That's another thing. They're <laughs> able to move quickly, where our government, by the time we're recovering from some attack from one corporation, we've been slapped in the back forehead and kicked in the stomach and and all sorts of other things by right. five other corporations yeah, by the I time agree. we're recovering from something from like 30 years ago yeah you know it's I, just I like agree. we're held at the whim and so basically until we say absolutely not uh we will continue to be at the whim of of corporations that's my yeah. personal take on this i will say though i agree with the notion that trump is an outsider in the political sense oh absolutely because i don't think it Anyone who was an establishment politician wanted him to win. I, I think that's I don't even think Trump clear. intended on winning. You know, there just I, came a point where yeah. you know uh, the only thing Trump wanted. I think it was kind of a pl publicity stunt, and it got all the producers on him. You know, yeah. Where I, did we go right? And he's not really one for saying I'm sorry or I was wrong. So we kind of had to go all in. Yeah. You know, and I guess if you're playing the long game for your kids, I don't know how long of a long game you can play when you're like. Old as dirt, yeah. But um, if you're playing the long game for your kids, you know, in 30 years, uh, people probably aren't going to hate on him, and his business is probably going to be all the larger than it is today. You Maybe know, you know, just because <laughs> uh, we have a sh we have a short memory. That is certainly true. You know, so it's like uh, the name will hold on, the brand will hold on. Yeah. But the actions of one family member is not going to hold Well, on. you know, by the time we elect Mil Milo Yiannopoulos for president, Trump will look pretty right. good. Right. My, 
is that the first Venetian president? What is that? I, I Milo Yiannopoulos. I think it's a Greek name. <laughs> oh, he's okay. just this. He's basically a professional troll. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> I'd never heard the name. Uh, That's funny. Or you know, President Shapiro. You know, right. That's maybe a little more mainstream, but right. just as horrible. Or Mountain Dew Camacho. I I don't know. Mountain Dew Camacho recognizes <laughs> when he's out of his depth and he yeah. seeks expert counsel. I, totally. I think those are those are useful qualities right. in a leader. He he recognizes a big brain when he's he's one. Precisely. <laughs> All right, you're listening to Radio Wasteland. Come on back. We're going to talk about what we got going on next week. All right, welcome back to Radio Wasteland. Um, what do we got going on next week, Kara? Yeah, so I just spent the last segment talking about how ridiculous this, you know, what this guy was saying was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm going to talk to you next week about how dragons are real and probably possess terrifying magical powers. Right. So right. I think there's there's a fair bit of evidence for this. Okay, actually, not the magical powers part, but I'm going to be talking about, you know, Two things here. We're going to be talking about sea serpents, and we're going to be talking about sky serpents. Both of which, there's a long history of sightings, you know, similar to your other cryptids, your Bigfoots, your dogmen, your lizard people, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, serpent-shaped UFOs, a uh, huge thing in the last 20 years or so. Um, but that's pretty easily explained, right? Because you say... They're balloons. They're strings of balloons. You're seeing them from a great distance. Sure. Sure. So just that I don't think is very compelling. What is compelling is that for the last 500 years, people have been seeing these things. And we have written records of snakes in the sky, um, often described as iridescent, you know, shining, rainbow-colored, whatever, of varying sizes. You know, you've got your two-foot-long snakes, and you've got your you know, 100-foot-long snakes. But the fact is, there's a pretty ridiculous number of sightings of these things from, um, you know... the Antiquity for- on, I assume. Yeah, from antiquity on. But I'm, I'm really focusing on the last 500 years or so because we've got some actual written records. I see. Now, dragons are a thing in every culture including cultures which had no contact since, you know, well, like, prehistory. So the Americas have has dragons. Um, yeah, Europe, what's the... Uh, Europe does, Asia does, Africa does. Oka, Oki, uh, I know the American one that... Uh, Quetzalcoatl? Oh, well, yeah, definitely that one. Uh, yeah. But but even uh, Native, Native Americans like to... Uh, yeah, you, even in North yeah, America, yeah, yeah. There, there are those myths. So, altogether, it it looks strange, and there's something unexplained going on. It's difficult to imagine that there is actually 100-foot-long snakes floating in the sky. Like, what are they? They can't possibly be regular animals. What are we dealing with here? Right. Um, in, in recent times, people have said they're weirdly shaped UFOs, and that makes a little bit of sense to me. Um, yeah, but... Uh... You never know, unidentified flying objects. Exactly. You know? All right, well, I am looking forward to that. Uh, can I Can I give you a little bit of homework when we get home? Can I uh, send you a link yes. for, of a movie to watch? Okay. It's a cartoon called Flight of the Dragons. We've talked okay. about it before. And I had no idea what you were saying. Yes. Yeah. 
but it's fully a little kid movie. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'll muddle through it. All right. All right. Yeah, just play in the background. <laughs> All right, you're listening to Radio Wasteland, so next week we're going to be talking about dragons, sky serpents, sea serpents, serpent serpents. Uh, don't miss out. And until then, do what you do.
the ones that are made for garbage detail. You take the others who are made to think, but who can't act. You take... I swallowed a bug.